long years ago, we made a trip with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new, it is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Welcome everyone to India Colonized, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's colonial history. I am your host, Umar Haq, and today on our next episode of Kuftagu, we have with us Dr. Kate Aimi. Dr. Kate Aimi is a historian of culture and war in British colonial Asia. Her first book, Faithful Fighters, Identity and Power in British Indian Army, examines the culture and anti-colonialism in 20th century British Indian Army. It has won the NACBS Stansky Prize and the Pacific Coast Branch Book Award of American Historical Association. Her next project considers soldiers and civilian experiences of the war in Singapore and Malaya. She is currently the recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship, two CLS Awards in Hindi and Urdu, a fellowship from the Institute of Historical Research in London, and another grant from American Historical Association. Here is our conversation with Dr. Kate Aimee on a book, Faithful Fighters, Identity and Power in the British Indian Army. Hello and welcome, uh, Professor Kate Aimee, to India Colonized. Uh, we are absolutely thrilled and glad to have you on our podcast. Um, so before we begin to discuss your book and get down to discussing the themes of your book and, and the questions that I have, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, so that you can introduce yourself to our audience. So if you could tell us a bit about yourself, uh, the kind of intellectual journey you've had, um, what were the kind of influences like books or people or academicians that have influenced your journey so far? Sure. Um, so first, just thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so glad to be here. I think um, what you're doing, uh, the intellectual project that you've built is really admirable. So um, congratulations on on the fantastic work that you're doing. Um, I'm very impressed also because you you mentioned that you are kind of coming out of the, your undergrad and looking ahead to a master's and, and to have accomplished so much um, so quickly is, is quite admirable. My journey was a little bit slower than that. I started in college initially at the, at the United States Air Force Academy. So um, I was expecting at that point in time when I was, you know, 17, 18 to have a career in the military. And within a year, I realized it was the wrong fit. I was very much an, an arts and you know performance and, and literature and history kind of person. So I went to a community college. I worked through my undergrad, um, was, was fortunate to get into some master's programs, was able to work as a TA. So my circumstances were very much wedded to my, my intellectual growth. Um, so I went to you know public schools throughout, um, which was great. I met a lot of different people um, with different life experiences, which provided, I think, a very unique window into academic life. Uh, and then, you know, it was in that kind of bachelor's to master's transition where I started to get interested in a lot of British authors who wrote about India. And I was like, okay, well, what happens if you dig into that relationship a little bit more um, and start to, you know, understand other sites of intellectual exchange 
so I was thinking about the army uh, and militaries as a site of, you know, potential intellectual exchange and what, what happens if we focus not on, you know, high-minded authors, but on, you know, men who are, you know, in the rank and file together and, you know, came across a couple of British men who learned yoga or claimed that they learned yoga during their time in India. So I was interested in, in those histories um, and really just, I, you know, I became very influenced by post-colonial studies, by subaltern studies, histories from below, um, gender history, histories of the body, and thinking about, okay, how can we apply those histories, again, to a military and, and ask different questions about the military? Because I think, you know, my very brief experience of being in the military sort of for one year um, opened up a lot of questions for me. You know, the, at the Air Force Academy, for example, the central building on that campus is a chapel. And so, you know, thinking about the relationship between faith and the military um, is I think a very important one, not only for the United States, but also globally and thinking about how these colonial legacies shape uh, how militaries are born, which expressions of faith get institutional support and which ones do not. Um, and so I think those are those are questions with global resonance that continue to inform my work. Sorry. So yeah, I was telling that was really fascinating because I've always wondered about uh, how they always have a chaplain or an imam. They're always recruiting religious leaders to the army and, uh, you know, where they actually teach you to actually have uh, your... Um, affinity and, and the kind of uh, obedience to the state, but they're also uh, making sure that they are very closely related to their faith and their faith is maintained as well. Um, so go like before we also go into uh, studying, uh, your, I mean, getting to know your book well, so what was the journey like to come across to write this uh, particular project, like this book about uh, Indian uh, Indians in, in the World War and their relation with culture and faith? Um, yeah, so it was a it was an interesting journey. I, I think I started with that question with those those British men who who claimed that they did and learned yoga in India as soldiers. I was like, okay, what does that mean? And then uh, kind of came to learn that both of those men became British fascists, um, which is <laughs> a surprising um, political lean. I think, especially thinking about what cultures and kind of countercultures and subcultures. Uh, yoga tends to occupy in the U.S. now, um, tends to be a little bit more lefty, a little bit more pacifist. Um, so, okay, what does it mean if you have British fascist men doing yoga? Um, so that, for me, opened up, okay, there's something interesting going on in the military. Um, so I wanted to look at those cultural exchanges in the military and said, okay, what what's the best way to do that? And that's through soldiers' personal stories. So the journey to write the books had to start with specific case studies of individual men. And throughout, I uh, prioritize, like, I can't just have this be a history of British men writing about Indian soldiers, you know, like, we've, we've kind of seen that that's the history that has existed since colonialism, which is, you know, British officers writing about the men that surround them, uh, and not necessarily getting Indian soldiers' perspectives of those encounters, of those exchanges, uh, of those debates, and of their service and what it meant to them. So I initially started and was able to find a lot more easily some case studies of um, British men who, you know, there was one man who converted to Islam or tried to convert to Islam before a chaplain kind of stepped on, stepped in and uh, prevented him from doing so, and found all these kinds of case studies. Um, but then I also found a lot of oral histories from the Imperial War Museum, which were very helpful. 
because they have a, a great database. And I think, especially now when we're living in a time where there are so many travel restrictions, um, something I certainly encourage my graduate students to think about is find out, find out what's out there that's been digitized, that's accessible any, anywhere in the world. Um, because I think, you know, unfortunately, travel restrictions like this will be with us for a long time. And of course, these are building on older um, national ideas about who can travel where and these kinds of things are getting uh, stricter and harder and access to archival materials um, is very unequal and inequitable. So I think for any any students out there listening, you know, do as much as you can online because there are some some really valuable resources and Imperial War Museum is one of those places and they have a lot of digitized oral history interviews with Indian soldiers uh, and veterans particularly. So I was able to go through and, you know, a lot of these are, are took place, these interviews took place 30 to 40 years after these men actually served. So of course you have to deal with questions of memory and things like this. Um, but it, it provided me with a lot of great insight about how soldiers themselves understood uh, cultural exchange and how the army shaped that. So the journey for this project involved finding the sources first for me, because I wanted to make sure that whatever history I wrote uh, was legible to, you know, or could have been legible to the soldiers themselves, that soldiers themselves wouldn't, you know, if time travel existed, wouldn't pick up my book and be confused and say, what is she talking about? You know, I wanted soldiers' voices to be, you know, my starting point and then to build my arguments from there. Well, uh, that's fascinating as well. Something um, that I always want, I mean, I mean, one of the questions that I want to ask you is kind of the methodology with which you approach these sources in these archives and how is it different to what's already done in academia or is it, uh, is it different? And if so, how is it different? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I'm I'm lucky and, and we are as scholars are lucky to be living in a time where people are asking great questions about the military. You know, I exist in conversation with a lot of fantastic authors like uh, Yasmin Khan, who wrote about the Second World War, Sharbani Basu, who um, is a journalist and, and has written about the, the First World War and Indian soldiers. Um, Shantanu Das has written many wonderful works about Indian soldiers. Uh, particularly from a cultural lens, thinking about art, thinking about song. So I'm existing in conversation with these scholars as opposed to necessarily in opposition to these scholars um, because they've been doing fantastic work and there's um, a lot of really rich and interesting work happening with culture in the military right now. So we're all very fortunate um, to be doing this, this type of work. For me, I'm a very story-driven historian. So I'm very interested in people's individual stories their individual experiences of service and how individual stories can open up wider truths and wider understandings of colonial dynamics, of cultural dynamics, of what it meant to, to live, work, and serve in the military. Um, so I tend to start with these stories, but then I'm you know, very informed by, um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, histories from below, post-colonial studies, subaltern studies, histories of the body, thinking about the body as uh, not a fixed object that never changes over time, but one which is, you know, deeply immersed in all sorts of things like food, uh, weather, access to comforts uh, that, you know, tell us a great deal about the societies and the worlds in which people lived. So I see myself as, you know, deeply committed to the archive and the sources, but also trying to bring um, a theoretically informed approach 
so that I'm not just, for example, taking for granted uh, that what British officers write about their soldiers is true. <laughs> you know, I doing a lot of reading against the grain, thinking about, okay, what what type of things could this soldier uh, or this officer be hiding? What what else might have been going on? What other sources can I put in conversation with official reports to get a slightly different texture and nuance to it? So I try to be uh, fairly eclectic in my approach. I see the work that other scholars uh, has done uh, as you know a kind of debt, uh, and I tend to approach other scholars' work with a with gratitude that they did a lot of work that I now don't have to do. Um, but at the same time, try to always lead with the sources and um, make sure that you know whatever I'm bringing to a particular topic um, that it is something that that feels informed by a broad source base. Uh, but is also in conversation with what other fantastic scholars are are also doing. Well, I, by the way, I must tell you, I really appreciate the way you've uh, built the narrative in the book and how it is uh, building around. You know, it's it's quite much like you emphasize that it's it's story like, it's gripping to understand, and it's, it's kind of like a page turner. Uh, you Thank also you. <laughs> mentioned about, uh, you know, the capturing of nuances that you were trying to do with the different narratives that you were trying to come across about the soldiers and uh, what already exists and what uh, the British officers have written about the soldiers. Uh, my question to you was, uh, what were the kind of limitations that uh, you came across while accessing the uh, records of these soldiers or the voices of these people, because I mean that's probably not the most prominent of the voices that are there out uh, that are being studied. Absolutely, it's it's something you always face as a scholar. Um, is the you know there there tend to be very unequal amounts of archives available with different voices. So you know I think it it is very much possible, not necessarily advisable, but possible to write a history of the Indian army that uses exclusively British sources, um, that exclusively uses official reports, you know, because there are dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of pages of these things, you know, like uh, um, Indian officer or uh, British officers who served in the Indian army, they left behind oral history records. They left behind in some cases, you know, 300 page published and unpublished manuscripts. So it's like, there's there's an overwhelming volume of material from uh, British perspectives. Uh, and I do say perspectives plural because, you know, not, of course, not every British officer or soldier had the same experience. Uh, and, you know, one can certainly do good work uh, and interesting work looking at the subtleties and nuances between them. But for me, it was always Im important and not just important, but essential to, foreground the hundreds of thousands of Indian soldiers. Uh, but like you said, it's it's challenging and it's a choice. You know, if you have, especially with uh, as a graduate student, limited funds, you have three weeks in the archive and you have two days left before you have to get on your flight and go home. And you kind of think to yourself, I can either in that time go through these 15 files of official British reports, or I can like intensively study this one, you know, Urdu manuscript that I have to go through a little bit more slowly because, you know, the pages are worn and the, the script is maybe faded and I have to go through it very meticulously. Um, you know, so I think students are always making those choices. And for me, it's worth it to put in the time to dig into the sources, to, to look for the sources, to find the sources, 
but you do have to you you have to you do have to put in the work. Um, and so thankfully, there are other sources that exist um, that make it a little easier. So the British Library, for example, has censored Indian letters um, that people like David O'Missy have made great use of over the years. Um, where Indian soldiers would write to their friends, their family members, but British censors would take those letters and make sure they weren't giving away uh, vital information about the, the, a battle uh, or about their, the movement of troops, uh, or in some cases that they weren't sending information back home, like, oh, you know, service is really terrible. Don't let my brothers enlist. You know, they want to also prevent those kinds of things from, from getting back home. So you have to read sources like that with a grain of salt um, and, and with a very careful lens because the, the, the sources that remain have been translated, transcribed, and generally uh, excerpted. So you're dealing with um, a, a translator who may or may not be British or Indian. You know, they, translators came from all different walks of life. Um, and it may or may not have been their first language. So translation is always tricky and you're dealing with an English translation of something that was not produced originally in English. It's usually excerpted. So it's taken out of the context of the letter uh, and usually one or two lines as opposed to you know a two or three page letter. So you have all these problems with sources. And I think in some cases people are tempted to say, oh, well, that's not worth using because the source has all these problems. But you know, for me, it's like, if this is one of the best ways you can access Indian soldiers' voices, you have to use that source, you know, uh, and you have to apply the same rigor that you apply to that source to the official report, um, in my opinion, because the official reports also are uh, excluding information, they're excluding perspective, they're crafting a narrative, they're creating a story. So I think anytime you approach any source, you have to be very careful and you know the official reports. There are so many of them; they go on forever. Um, and same with you know individual testimonies. You have to be as careful with those sources, even though they might be you know easier to read or they might be typed up and very nicely organized. You still have to be careful with those sources. So um, you know that's sort of what I would recommend. And those are some of the challenges that you have to overcome. Uh, and then of course, anyone that's been to the Indian archives, uh, the National Archives of India in particular, knows that sometimes the, the sources you want didn't get transferred or they haven't been preserved. So if you fill out a slip, you often will get an NT, meaning not transferred. And it's the bane of, of every scholar of South Asia's existence because some of those sources don't exist. So you, you have those things happen. Um, and then I, of course, I went to like 12 different archives uh, across India. so. I wanted to be, you know, as as eclectic in my archival approach. And then with each, you know, new place, you're learning a new institution, you're learning the personalities of the people that work there. And that that applies wherever you go. So certainly there were challenges no matter where you went uh, and no matter what type of source you were using. So encouragement for for anyone starting off is that it'll be hard no matter what you do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely been a labor of love, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You have to really be committed to, to telling the story you want to tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously you've come, probably come across a lot more, many sources and a lot more interesting things. Uh, has there been anything that you've probably not been able to include because of publication restrictions that you were like, okay, this should have been really part of the book, but I haven't been able to put that. So if there's something like that, what would be like one thing you would want the audience to know that, you know, it was going to be a part of the book, but unfortunately could not make it. Yeah, so I was fairly fortunate um, as a graduate student 
to get a lot of time to do research. Um, and so I was able to spend like a year in India and a year in the UK to, to just focus on research. So what ended up happening was that there was a lot of material that I didn't have time to get to for my dissertation that then when I was doing the dissertation to book, um, I actually added things in that transition. Um, and then I was fairly lucky with my publishers um, with Stanford University Press that when I submitted the manuscript, you know, they felt that the organization I had chosen was appropriate and correct. And, you know, they didn't have any um, big suggestions for, for changing anything. And they didn't think that anything needed to be cut. So most of those choices sort of fell to me. Um, and one thing in particular that when I was in the archives really resonated with me was uh, the story of the Singapore mutiny in uh, 1915. Uh, and so a lot of people have been writing about this recently, including like Heather Street Salter um, just wrote a great book on uh, World War I in Southeast Asia, where she talks about the Singapore mutiny of 1915. And that was, uh, you know, I came across hundreds of pages of documents on this, including hundreds of pages of, of Indian soldiers' testimonies, um, many of which were, were kind of ignored when the official reports were comprised. And so I found that distinction really interesting. Um, but for this book, for Faithful Fighters, it fit. And I talked about uh, the Singapore mutiny in, in various moments in kind of smaller ways. But I really wanted to dig into that story and, and look at the difference between Indian soldiers testimonies and the official reports. And I wasn't really able to do that in, for this project. So it, it actually became the starting point of, of the second book that I'm now working on, which, which does look at um, warfare in Singapore and Malaya with the Singapore mutiny as a starting point and sort of takes it forward from there. So thankfully it's something I was able to continue with um, even though I was very disappointed I couldn't spend more time on that uh, in that original book. Well, that's something, uh, it's a project I'll be looking forward to read <laughs> soon. I hope it comes out soon. Um, so one of the things uh, before we actually dive into um, dissecting the themes of your book, uh, for the sake of our audience, could you like uh, state what are the themes in the book and what is like generally briefly and generally covered what is the subject of your book is? Sure. So the book is called Faithful Fighters. So one of the questions that's really interested me is, is what it means to be faithful um, in all of its variety of meanings. Um, so from a, a, you know, a colonial lens, being faithful to the government has a specific set of meanings. Um, and of course, that's usually funneled through narratives about loyalty and fidelity and, you know, fighting hard to the end and, and staying loyal to the government. Um, but for Indian soldiers, you know, I think it has a much broader meaning. Um, they are simultaneously navigating loyalties to their friends, their families, um, their communities, uh, as well as the government or their individual officers that they may or may not feel uh, some, some kind of personal connection to. So thinking about that um, and the, the many meanings of loyalty and faithfulness um, were interesting to me. And then also just putting the military in conversation with faith um, and the many meanings of faith. So I deliberately use faith rather than religion because I think there's a lot of great uh, work in anthropology and religious studies, people like Talal Assad and you know, the list goes on, um, Edward Said to an extent, uh, about how this word religion has been, you know, used and manipulated and particularly during the colonial period fit, uh, you know, kind of altered to fit various different contexts. 
So the idea of Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, you know, being uh, a religion, that concept didn't necessarily exist prior to colonialism. You know, there were a variety of faith groups, uh, sometimes regional, sometimes local, sometimes familial, you know, all of these understandings of belonging were very pliable um, and could actually cross borders uh, of faith. So, you know, if you were what would be considered Hindu now living next door to a Muslim, uh, you know, those faith groups would actually intersect and, and relate to one another quite a lot um, prior to and even during the colonial period. Um, and those traditions would inform one another. Um, and so I think like Purnima Davan's uh, book on when sparrows became hawks, looking at um, the rise of the Sikh Khalsa uh, during the kind of Mughal, late Mughal, early, uh, early British colonial East India Company period is a fantastic work um, that, that looks at some of these questions of how faith groups in some cases define themselves in opposition to one another, but also very much in dialogue with one another. Um, so that's, you know, the idea of what, what does faithfulness mean? What, you know, how is religion used as a category? Um, and, you know, what can we gain by looking at the culture and, uh, you know, the history of the body of the military? These are some of the, the questions and the themes that for me animate the book. Um, and then in terms of topic, I wanted to look at the, early 20th century in the British Indian Army, um, because for me, this is a period where you have several things happening simultaneously. You have the formalization of the British Indian Army. So through much of the 19th century, the old East India Company designations of Bengal Army, Madras Army, uh, and so on, like that, those still kind of existed until the late 19th century. But then by the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century, you see a formalization. You see more articula uh, articulations of the Indian army as an Indian army. And so there's this desire to unify. There's this desire to bring these units together. Um, and this is happening against a backdrop of Indian anti-colonialism, uh, really intensifying in different visions of nationalism form uh, formalizing and hardening and coming into existence or taking new shape. And then this is also happening against a backdrop of world war, you know, a, a war to an extent that these soldiers haven't seen before. Many soldiers have been to war. There many of their, their fathers and their grandfathers have been to war, but they haven't been to a war quite like this and, and certainly not to the extent, um, you know, peacetime or so-called peacetime Indian army tended to range in number between 150,000 and 250,000. During the First World War, you have 1.4 million uh, soldiers and civilians serving. Um, so that's just, you know, such an extreme um, acceleration of just num like just raw numbers and also varieties of experience. You know, men serving from the Western fronts to ports like Singapore, uh, to Mesopotamia, to Arabia. You know, it's just a, a vast variety of experience in a very short period of time. So this intersection of anti-colonialism, uh, rising nationalism, global war, and new articulations of faith groups to me is very fascinating. And so looking at the military as the kind of nexus of these questions is something that I haven't really seen done before in this way, like really looking at the army um, as, as the, the center of a lot of these debates. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, it, what makes the book interesting is how 
it's moved in so many backdrops and the fascinating intersection of these backdrops that have been uh, and and you know generally one of I, I think that's one of the shortcoming of our education and history here at least in India is that uh, we are always taught these things in isolation that none of these it's always imagined that this is happening in isolation to the other incident the, the anti-colonial movements to what's actually happening in the world war I mean it's not actually touched the world war and Indian participation is very rarely uh, spoken of but uh, even if it does it's not usually happening in the idea Okay, the the anti-colonial movements that are happening in the background, what is the context and how the soldiers were reacting to it and what was the interaction with it. Uh, so coming to uh, the first three chapters of your book, which kind of have a similar kind of theme of, of uh, between different communities and uh, how the British colonial power was basically, uh, it had certain conceptions and uh, preconceived notions about uh, a certain community and its martial race. Uh, you also talk about the martial race theory. Um, so coming to the first chapter where you talk about the six, um, there, there is, so what were the kind of um, conceptions or preconceived notions that were, the colonizers had about these race, uh, this particular race? And what are the kind of debates that were going between the community and how were they shattered? Uh, if so, if they were. Yeah, it's a that's a great question. And, and I think one of the things that I had to engage with uh, just inherently because of the topic is this idea of the martial races. It's one of the dominant ways that people, you know, if anyone has heard of the Indian army, uh, you know, one of the first things they say, there are a few things like sometimes Amritsar will be the first thing they bring up. Sometimes 1857 will be the first thing they bring up. Uh, but the martial races is usually right there as well. Like, oh yes, of course, Indian army. That was, you know, because all the, all the Sikhs and the, and the Gurkhas, they were the strong ones. And so they went to war and, um, you know, cause they were natural soldiers and these kinds of things. So even now in the 21st century, a lot of those preconceived notions um, still exist. And I think for reasons that were, were very deliberate at the time. Um, so for the Sikh community in particular, um, a lot of the ideas about why these men made natural good soldiers was, was rooted and wrapped up in, in the, the formation of, of the Sikh Khalsa um, in the 18th century. Uh, and earlier, you know, the and when the, the Khalsa became its own empire and, and really rose to prominence in the 18th century, um, it created this idea in the minds of a lot of East India Company officials that, oh, wow, there's this warrior fraternity of, of men who exist, who are forming their own empire. And that's amazing. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the East India Company took on the Khalsa Empire at various moments, eventually annexing Punjab in the 1840s. And so this created this, this narrative, you know, it already kind of existed of like, oh, these are, these are the big strong soldiers. But that really became formalized and legitimized uh, in 1857 when a lot of these soldiers recently uh, incorporated, you know, by choice or by force into the East India Company's territories. A lot of them lost their livelihoods with the annexation of Punjab into the East India Company's territories. So, of course, if the East India Company says, hey, fight on our side, we'll give you a, a good paycheck and we'll give you lots of land. A lot of these men who are unemployed because their, you know, their armies have been dismantled um, are say, OK, fine, we'll fight on, on the side of the East India Company um, because that's our option. And um, that created this narrative of loyalty, which, of course, it never was. You know, Sikh men in, in 1857 didn't say, yes, we love the British, so we're going to fight for the British. But that's the narrative that was built around this service in its aftermath. 
Um, so because sick participation was, you know, relatively large and prominent in 1857, that built this idea that yes, these are the, the most loyal and steadfast soldiers. The reality was, of course, far more complex. As I mentioned, you know, a lot of soldiers aren't joining the East India Company because of you know, blind loyalty or devotion, it's, it's rooted in all sorts of different material contexts and the, you know, very recent annexation uh, of, of Punjab. So that continues into the late 19th century and beyond. Um, you know, British officers are constantly writing, oh my gosh, my, my six soldiers are, you know, talking to members of the Arya Samaj or they're um, creating their own groups or, you know, they're isolating themselves or they're protesting or they're, they're meeting up with Irish soldiers and they seem to be communicating with them or they're traveling uh, to the Northwestern border area with Afghanistan, you know, present day Afghanistan. And so like, there were all these things that these soldiers were doing that seemed to betray uh, British soldiers understanding of, of them as natural and loyal soldiers. And that kept happening. Nonetheless, British officers kept trying to perpetuate this idea of the naturally loyal Sikh soldier. And so one of the things that they really emphasized were the five markers of identity associated with the Khalsa warrior fraternity, um, which included uh, carrying a sword or a, called a kirpan. And so this was, of course, interesting because if you were a, an Indian man in the colonial period, you couldn't bear arms without a license, a government license uh, issued by British authorities. So there's this inherent contradiction where if you really want to be a martial man, part of your community, you are supposed to carry a sword, but you have to have a government license in order to do so. Um, so the British are trying to recruit as many men as they can who wear these five markers of identity. And it creates some issues because if they are serving in the military, well, then yes, they can, you know, maybe have access to swords. But in many cases, if men weren't serving in the military and they did identify with the Khalsa, they'd have to wear like a pin on their uh, on their pagris or their turbans. Um, and so there were all these ways and all these contradictions that existed with trying to forge what the loyal man looked like uh, and and therefore recruit him into the army. Um, with all sorts of unintended consequences to the point that by the early 20th century, um, there are a lot of uh, Sikh reformist organizations like the Tot or the True Khalsa um, that said, yes, that like these markers of identity are essential. And if you don't wear these uh, markers of identity, then you aren't really sick. And so that became um, a kind of community-based issue of contention that the army was implicated in. Um, and then who had access to weapons became another bigger problem, especially as we get into uh, rising anti-colonialism and a lot of people saying, hey, we can have these swords, let's use these swords to take on the British, um, which of course the British then did not like and tried to restrict the, the, the size of swords. So uh, things proved to be very complicated the more, uh, the more centrally, central they are to political discussions. Oh, uh so was it the reason, I mean, out of context, was that the reason why a long sword became like a small dragger, which uh, the Sikhs would carry around? Yeah, right. so uh, in a lot of what a lot of British officers found and a lot of, you know, Sikh soldiers found was that when they looked at paintings of the Khalsa Empire, you know, they'd see rows and rows of men, you know, carrying swords that were three feet long, and they'd be like, so we should probably have swords mm -hmm. that are three feet long, right? Um, but 
increasingly like police reports will be like, um, saw a Sikh man, like saw a Sikh man come into the market today with a four foot long sword made us a little nervous, you know? So then they have to start like, or they imagine that they need to start legislating like, okay, like four feet too long, three feet too long, 18 inches debatable, you know? And so like nine to 12 inches becomes like the ideal sword size. Um, and so, and this ends up happening regionally. So different regional governments will actually put in their own, um, their own restrictions. And so what you'll see is that in places like Bengal um, and Punjab, where uh, a lot of anti-colonial activism is high, those tend to be some of the places that put in the restrictions the earliest because they want to make sure that in these places where people are, you know, very upset and very active and very vocal um, and, and very organized, you know, because I think anger wasn't necessarily regionally specific, but they were better organized perhaps in different places. Those are the places where you see the legislation come the fastest. Um, but then it's also tricky, right? Because uh, Punjab is a major recruiting ground. And so you don't want to upset those, you know, military families that live in that area. So uh, that's why you see different regional responses. Um, and then, you know, sometimes the government of India says, no, no, it's okay. Everyone can have a sword and like try to impose what those links of swords are. Uh, but again, uh, on the ground level, it tends to go in a in hundred different directions. Wow. Um, so uh, about the same, uh, about the Sikh community itself. So how is uh, basically the Sikh community perceiving about the entire recruitment process for World War I? Uh, and how is it responding? Because they are, I mean, Khalsa is a very deeply religiously uh, affiliated uh, uh, army. So fighting for, say, someone of a different faith um, and how they're responding to how this is actually going on in the in the Europe, it's a, it's a conflict that does not concern them. But uh, ultimately, it might have not only just been for materialistic reasons, but uh, other reasons that they might have thought. Of. So what was the thought process of these uh, uh, soldiers and what were they going through uh, while this recruitment was happening? How was their response to what was happening in the war and the other uh, other things? Yeah, I think one of the the interesting things to to really learn about and dig into for me was just the variety of responses that soldiers have. You know, there there is no Muslim response to the war. There is no Sikh response to the war. There is no you know Nepali Gurkha response to the war. Uh, within these communities, there's disagreement. There's dissension, um, and you know individuals within the same family might feel very differently. Um, like the, the famous case of two Muslim soldiers um, who were brothers, you know, one of whom ended up deserting and one of whom, you know, won a medals uh, for the British. So you have the, this incredible variety of response. And so this exists with, within the Sikh community as well. Um, there are certainly some soldiers who say, hey, you know, this is great. I've been training since I was a young man to, to be in the military. My dad was in the military. His dad was in the military. Um, and, you know, we are maybe landowners now because of military service, or we have certain material advantages because of military service. And now the British are saying, I'm going to go to war and I get to go to Europe, which is not somewhere that, you know, my dad got to go. So that's pretty cool because like I get to go to Europe and I get to see a new place. So, you know, just that kind of thirst for adventure was, was a, you know, a motivation for some men. Um, some men definitely had a kind of spiritual or faithful response, which is like, 
you know, hey, if I believe uh, I am a part of the Khalsa and it is, you know, a Khalsa Sikh's duty to serve, here's an opportunity to do that. So it's not inconsistent with, you know, it doesn't matter what the faith of the ruler is. It's my opportunity to honor my faith uh, and go to war, you know, so some men would certainly have those responses. Some men would be a little bit leery and say, you know, all the things you mentioned, like, wait, this seems really far away. And, uh, and especially, you know, if men uh, who joined in, you know, in say 1916, they hear vague stories about like, Germany attacked France and Belgium and like, okay, we've heard that the Germans are kind of bad guys. So why are we going to Egypt? Or, you know, why are we going to Arabia? You know, they haven't necessarily heard the Ottoman Empire part of that story and how the British are expanding their territory because of this war. And they're like, wait, I thought it was the Germans were the bad guys and they were invading. So why is it that we're trying to dismantle this other, you know, so soldiers would certainly get leery for a variety of reasons as well. Like, why are we going somewhere completely different? Like, oh, my buddy last year, he went to war and, you know, he got injured and that was pretty awful. And I heard the trenches are pretty bad, but like, the French families were really nice to them. And, and so that's cool. And I want to go do that. But instead I'm going to like Mesopotamia, which I've never heard of. I don't know where that is even. Uh, and then when they get there, they're like, wait a minute, the climate is not great. And there's the sanitation, pretty awful. The food, very bad, you know, <laughs> like, so soldiers would have all sorts of reasons for being suspicious, uh, for being upset. Um, and then certainly, you know, political considerations would come into play as well. So um, in the early 20th century, something that people like uh, Maya Ramnath have written about uh, quite extensive, quite extensively, and uh, Gajendra Singh, I think, is also, he wrote a great book on Indian soldiers in the First and Second World War. He's writing um, now, I believe, on the, on the gutter movement, um, meaning mutiny, which was very prominent in the early 20th century, um, which was a, a kind of global anti-colonial network rooted in uh, the Northwestern, uh, Northwestern North America, basically. So Northern California, um, up into Vancouver in Canada, um, that was sort of the, the base, but they kind of moved globally and, and had a lot of traction in, in Southeast Asia, places like Singapore, and tried to reach out to soldiers, soldiers' families, uh, veterans, migrants who had any kind of connection to the military, and tried to say, hey, you know, there's there's something wrong with the British Empire. Maybe it's not the greatest thing for India. Maybe we can rise up, and and if we can recruit enough soldiers, maybe we can convince them uh, to to lead the charge. And so, you know, we know this isn't something that happened successfully in the First World War. Um, there are certainly efforts to to stir rebellion within the army in a variety of ways. Um, you know, it's much more famous in the Second World War when the Indian National Army kind of becomes the manifestation of anti-colonialism and fighting against the British as opposed to for the British. But there were efforts during the First World War. And so there are a lot of uh, Sikhs in particular that are connected to this Gadar movement um, that spans the globe. And, and in fact, uh, a lot of them are the first that these revolutionaries will reach out to. A lot of them themselves are members of the movement or their family members are members of the movement. So there are soldiers that are connected to that, that are politically aware um, and want to fight back. Um, so, you know, for me, I think really understanding that there isn't just one response to the war, even within the same community, there's, there's a whole host of responses that are all existing simultaneously. 
and British leaders are kind of trying to define within that, okay, let's try and make it as clear cut as possible. Who's loyal? Who can we trust? Who needs to get kicked out? Um, and in so doing, kind of muddying the lines between what people's actual responses were, which were quite complex. Okay. So, uh, I mean, the same probably applies to all the communities of Sikhs, Muslims, and the Nepali Gurkhas. Absolutely. But uh, as, as you mentioned about how the Ottoman, uh, you know, they were not aware of what the British was doing with the Ottoman Empire. Um, I was first, I mean, the, the audience should probably be fascinated to know about uh, how the Muslims were responding uh, when it came to the war, especially because they, they were being pitted against fighting uh, fellow members of faith. Um, and, uh, you know, how were they reconciling with fighting someone for, say, I mean, uh, Christians were of probably often considered as infidels, uh, and then fighting for, say, the queen on behalf against the sultan of the Ottoman Empire might have been something that might have been troubling. Again, you, as, as you said, there might have been multiple uh, uh, responses to this. Um, but, but my major question was, um, you know, what about those who were in contention to what they um, wanted to do? And how were these contentions resolved by the British? So how were the uh, co colonizers basically managing these contentions? Yeah, it's a great question. And I will say, um, you know, like you, like you correctly anticipated, uh, Muslim identity is vast and complex. Um, there are many, you know, regional identities, regional um, complexities and nuances, depending on, you know, where someone is from, it, it informs their understanding of their belief, um, but certainly does not determine it, you know, just because someone is from somewhere and had access to a certain set of teachings doesn't necessarily mean that, that that's how they'll interpret the world. But to your point, which is, you know, soldiers that are in contention, there absolutely were some soldiers who hear, you know, okay, within a few months of Britain going to war with Germany, they're going to war against the Ottoman Empire. And India and the Ottoman Empire had, you know, there were some really important connections between them because, uh, the Ottoman emperor held the position of, of caliph, the head of global Islam. And so a lot of Indian Muslims would look to the Ottoman empire as, you know, a source of spiritual inspiration. So now all of a sudden Britain is going to war with them and that becomes pretty problematic right out of the gate. And certainly was something that, that British leaders were worried about. And so people like um, Gajendra Singh, who I mentioned earlier, have, you know, written about this very well. Um, about how in the early months of the, of the war, there was a lot of concern on the part of British officers. Um, and there were isolated events that took place that, you know, furthered their concern. So the Singapore mutiny, for example, um, was a, a rising that happened in Singapore and most of the soldiers were Muslim. And so the reality of that event is quite complex, but the way that British leaders interpreted it at the time um, was that, oh, there, there were problems and these soldiers were afraid they were going to have to go fight other Muslims. And, you know, that was why they rebelled. You know, the truth far more complex, but that was the narrative that emerged from there. Similarly, there were um, higher rates of desertions among uh, Pashtun or Pathan soldiers recruited from the northwestern borderlands. So that caused some concern. There were instances of some Muslim soldiers refusing to set sail if they were being sent somewhere like Mesopotamia, where they were going to be expected to fight against Muslim soldiers. So there were isolated moments like this, and soldiers certainly would 
take the opportunity to say, no, no, like we're not doing this. And so to your point, British leaders are, are kind of having to improvise in the moment. How do we keep these soldiers disciplined? Um, how do we keep them fighting for what we want them to fight for without necessarily uh, forcing them to take on the Ottoman Empire, at least explicitly? And so, you know, one thing that's also worth noting, I think, is that although there are these famous incidents, um, there were, uh, you know, probably at least 400,000 Muslims serving in the British Indian Army um, as, uh, as soldiers and as followers the vast majority of these men, you know, don't rebel, they don't rise up, they, you know, and so I think that's important to keep in mind when we think about these instances of desertion that are very well documented, there are these instances of dissension, you know, usually there's more going on than just a single cause um, for people to rebel, you know, for someone to kill their officers, for example, usually there's more than one reason. Uh, and a lot of times the material conditions would, would come into play there. Um, so what British leaders would do in response was that they would try to find ways to appeal to soldiers and say, okay, yes, we are sending you to fight in the Ottoman Empire, but when you get there, we really want you to protect some Muslim holy sites that exist there because the Ottoman Empire might destroy them, you know? And so kind of trying to say, you are going there as protectors, you are going there to help other Muslims as opposed to you are going there to fight other Muslims. So creating a new story and, and sort of rebranding that service became very important. Uh, and then what I talk about in the book is that in the, the later stages of the war and even in its aftermath, the geographic proximity to where a lot of these soldiers are serving is quite close to uh, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And so British officers will organize official pilgrimages to these holy sites for their Indian soldiers. Um, so again, it's, it's trying to create this idea that, you know, you are faithful fighters, you are just soldiers, you are honoring your faith in your service and your service is helping you do that rather than forcing, you know, rather than focusing on like, okay, you're taking on the Ottoman empire, which holds the position of the Caliph and you're fighting other Muslims, erasing that narrative. And instead saying, no, 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 you get to be protecting other Muslims. You get to be protecting um, Muslim holy sites. You get to, you know, undertake one of the, the major pillars of Islam and by doing the Hajj, you know, and so it's a way of rebranding that service and saying this service is compatible with your faith. Um, therefore, if you fight for the British Empire, it makes you a better Muslim rather than making you an infidel, for example. Well, uh... That, that is fascinating or how they would convert it to becoming a rather turn it in, in perspective of religion rather than villainizing the Ottoman Empire and telling them, okay, this is why we want you to fight the Ottoman Empire. I mean, that could have been the narrative. They, they, they could have pro made a propaganda and told the Indian Muslims, okay, this is not what your killer stands for. So they did that they also. <laughs> you know, that certainly also existed, uh, which is a kind of demonization. And um, like one thing they would do is they'd be like, oh, look how bad Mecca and Medina look under the Ottoman Empire, like, okay. look how poorly uh, maintained these sites are because, of, you know, so they certainly did that, too. They would, you know, they would do the the typical thing, like emphasizing atrocities, you know, that those kinds of things existed as well. Um, but I think just the, the massive scale of mobilizing these ideas of faith, because it, it takes a lot of time, energy and money to send, you know, hundreds and thousands of soldiers on pilgrimage, you know, and so I think that became a, a major 
source of, of support for them, which is why they invested the, the time, money, and energy into it. And probably they had to, because they had a war going on, they had to have the soldiers on their side. Um, so uh, in, in the same chapter, you discuss the case of the Pathans and uh, discuss the problem of the empire uh, about valorizing masculinity and uh, how uh, that was also in conflict with, that was also in conflict with the rebellion. So they had to keep the army disciplined while at the same time not valorize it so much. Um, and, and probably not just in the particular case of the Pathan, but mostly even in, in other races as well. Um, so that was one question about, you know, how they used to valorize it while also remaining deeply suspicious. And also the other question uh, was about uh, the fascinating case and figure of Captain Mosey, uh, if, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wanted to understand this case in order to, for our audience and for me to, basically assert some of the uh, uh, opinion about the sort of um, intricate uh, happenings in, in the colonial space of what's going on in uh, with regards to sexuality or with regards to certain uh, other ideas of uh, being of, of the individual. Yeah, so uh, really great question. Um, so the, the issue with the, the kind of Pashtun uh, Patan identity is that during the colonial period, uh, you know, the, the Patan identity was regarded as one of the martial races. And so, you know, this is dealing with a, a community predominantly of Muslims uh, recruited from Northwestern India, the borders with uh, Afghanistan. So modern day Pakistan. Um, and so the idea, the martial race idea is that, you know, because these men come from a border area, uh, which has, you know, an inhospitable landscape, that this made them hardy and strong, um, but also slightly dangerous, you know, slightly inclined maybe in, you know, in a British frame to being too devout or, you know, too committed to, um, you know, their, their beliefs and practices. Um, and then similarly, there was a narrative of because, you know, there was a perception that there were fewer women in this area, this made these men inclined to uh, having sex with other men. And, you know, interesting, there's a, a great book that is coming out now called Imagining Afghanistan that that engages with a lot of these similar um, kinds of narratives. Um, and so, the, you know, these narratives haven't gone away, unfortunately, but in the colonial period, it was used to simultaneously recruit and demonize these soldiers, you know, according to the needs of recruiting officers. So many of these men weren't actually colonial subjects, especially if they were, you know, born or lived outside of colonial, colonial borders, um, but they could nonetheless be recruited. And so this created a kind of weird intermediary position. Um, and so, you know, in times where they were valued, hey, yes, they're, they're strong, uh, they're good fighters, so they're desirable for that reason. But in times when, you know, these men would rebel or desert. Uh, and again, you know, in many cases, it was because their homes were being taken over while they were away at battle. So they would desert to go back home and like help their families. Um, nonetheless, the British tended to see any act of desertion or any act of rebellion through a religious lens. So, oh, if they're deserting or rebelling, it must be because they are, you know, fanatics, uh, to use the, the scare quotes on that, um, the British word on that. Um, so there was a, a lack of understanding that kind of pervaded the recruitment of these men. And so you have someone like, uh, like uh, Captain and then demoted Lieutenant Moisey stepping in, 
who's kind of picking up these narratives and uh you know he's in you know i believe having sex with some of these men and ends up getting implicated and participating in anti-colonial networks and activities um which were fairly common uh along the northwestern border um there were plots based in kabul trying to unify uh german and ottoman revolutionaries with uh afghan revolutionaries and then also indian revolutionaries to try and launch an invasion into india which would kind of come true uh by 1919 with the the third anglo-afghan war there there would sort of be an effort to try and oust the british but by then uh, you know, the war's over, the, the moment has kind of been missed, the British can now uh, reorient the Royal Air Force uh, with very devastating um, consequences um, in this region. Um, and, but so it, it kind of fails, but nonetheless, it shows that there were these kind of wartime efforts to bring revolutionaries together in, in places like Kabul uh, and foment revolution there. And so someone like Moisey is participating in this um, and tries to and as a british officer is trying to lead a rebellion with uh the assistance of various uh Pathan, as they were known at the time soldiers um which kind of confounds the colonial state because like a british officer is like the last person in their imaginary who should be rising up who should be trying to take on the british empire it's the british officer officer should be the most loyal who has the most to gain who has the most faith and belief in the british empire and you know he is the person that is leading a rebellion and so i kind of take his case uh and and break it down and say like yeah there were of course british officers who saw what was going on who had a lot of questions who wanted to push back against all these uh inequalities and inequities but also they had the privilege to do so you know they had um more access to mobility their movements were in some ways more scrutinized but in some ways less scrutinized because they could always sort of explain their way out of a situation you know if an indian soldier was caught talking to the wrong person they could end up in prison if they were caught with a seditious pamphlet even if it was just because somebody handed it in handed it to them on the docks and they didn't think about it and they threw it in their bag and they maybe couldn't even read it if it's caught in their stuff they could go to prison for that so there was such a, a small amount of um leniency when it came to indian soldiers that if they did the smallest thing they could they could lose their jobs they could find themselves in prison whereas a british officer i mean this guy he literally tries to kidnap a general's daughter he breaks uh, uh, another man out of prison using explosives, seemingly, you know, he kind of like does a whole range of things that like never really get him in trouble. And you're just sort of like, how and when? And at what point will someone hold this guy accountable? And it never really happens. Uh, eventually, like after all of these things, he has a few months in prison, which is already like unheard of for a British officer because the fear uh, the, of the you know colonial state is that if you see a you know a white man being held accountable then that kind of throws into doubt the uh the benevolence and the paternalism of empire that these are the men that know what they're doing and and are always going to be just but if you put one of them in prison oh my gosh that that throws the whole racial hierarchy into uh into chaos potentially um and so he's put in prison which is already quite extreme and then he's actually like banned from india after that um, and sent to another part of the empire where probably, you know, he continued, I would imagine, but the, the, the archival trail kind of drops off at that point. 
so yeah, he kind of reveals that this idea of the rebellious Patan soldier uh, was a colonial fantasy and that no one could carry it out better than a British officer who had the mobility, who had the power and who had the lack of accountability to pull this off um, because, you know, other revolutionaries are certainly active and they're certainly able to evade capture in part because of colonial racism and, um, and things like this. But, you know, his, his name exists, his uh, legacy exists because he was, he was able to get away with so much for so long uh, and had a, a, a fairly limited amount of prison time as a result. Well, um, that is a really interesting story. I hope someone is at least writing a book in detail about the entire case of Captain Mosey. Um, so try, uh, coming to your next chapter about the Nepali Gurkhas and trying to understand them, uh, you mentioned that they were mostly seen as, uh, you know, the colonizers saw them as more loyal and more steadfast uh, when in, in comparison to the other races. And wh why, why were they seen to be so? So one thing that uh, I think is, is fascinating about the Indian army is that there was so much diversity within it. Um, and so this is one good example, you know, like the, um, you know, Patan, Afghan, Pashtun soldiers were considered disloyal because they lived on the borders with Afghanistan. And it was like, okay, well, where did their loyalties really lie? Um, but like the exact opposite argument was made for Nepali Gurkha soldiers, which is like, oh, okay, they are citizens of, of Nepal, but they're choosing to fight for the British. Therefore, they love the British. And, you know, <laughs> like, so it was like the exact opposite argument, like because they had these other loyalties, it made them somehow better. Um, so, you know, interesting how those, those things work out when you want them to. Um, and so in their case, one thing that the the kind of martial race recruiting trope always emphasized was that was that they were Hindus who didn't care about caste. Um, so in this, there's a few distortions happening. One, not all Nepali soldiers were Hindu um, or would have identified that way. Uh, and then the other was that like that they didn't care about caste. It's like, well, what does that really mean? Um, and so in my in my chapter in this book, I, I look at the, the issue of Panipatia, um, which involved a kind of purification for crossing the black waters of the ocean, which was uh, an act of impurity. And so in theory, if the colonial narrative is that, you know, Nepali soldiers don't care about caste, then crossing the black waters of the ocean should not have mattered for them at all. But what happens is actually the opposite, that uh, Indian Hindus are expected by the British to cross the black waters of the ocean and then to just kind of get over it. Um, whereas with the case of Nepali soldiers, the, the Nepal government is actually putting pressure on the British government uh, and the military authorities to ensure that these soldiers are getting purification ceremonies when they come back to the point that they're actually sent to uh, Dehradun in North, uh, Northern India to have these purification ceremonies. It becomes an official part of their service, even if they're injured, even if they're dying, even if they are desperate to go home and find their family, first they have to go to Dehradun and, and stay there and get this ceremony first, in which case, you know, they uh, often, like they have two weeks of leave and they spend two weeks going up there and then now they have to go back and they don't get to see their family at all. So the colonial narrative is clearly betrayed because the Nepal government uh, is creating all of these complications. And then of course, some of the men 
do care about this practice. Some of the men don't care about this practice. And it creates all of these uh, additional fissures and fractures because Nepali men are sort of looking around and they're like, wait a minute. Um, you say that we don't care about caste, but you're forcing us to do this caste ceremony that we don't even necessarily practice. Like, how does this make sense? And so, you know, of course, uh, revolutionaries in the Ghadar movement, for example, find out about this, go to Deridu and start recruiting to these men. And, and you know, it creates additional anti-colonial networks because of this desire to uh, invent, create, harden um, a practice that soldiers may or may not have even cared about. Um, so yeah, it's another way that these ideas about soldiers tended to be very different from the, re the reality and then the you know, making diverse beliefs and practices into a kind of bureaucratic norm created all sorts of problems as well. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for explaining so intricately. I was actually going to come to the question about what were the kind of preconceived notions that the British had that were going to go, uh, that they had wrong. Um, so let's continue to your next chapter where uh, you explore the questions of dietary patterns of uh, each of these communities. Uh, especially uh, what I found interesting was the idea of namak halal, uh, the loyalty to salt. So for the sake of our audience, if you could like explain the idea of namak halal and how dietary habit, especially uh, salt in the imagination of Indian soldiers of the World War played an important role in, uh, if so, what was the kind of role? Yeah, so this, uh, this concept is really interesting. The idea of basically owing your loyalty to the salt of the government um, was how it, it kind of became uh, understood in the early 20th century. And so it had earlier precedents in you know, the Mughal armies um, in particular, where the idea was that whoever fed you, whoever kept your belly full, um, that was the person to, own, to whom you owed your, your fidelity, your loyalty. And so, you know, it was understood earlier as a kind of mutual obligation that as long as, as long as you were being treated well, you would owe your devotion to whatever entity was giving you your sustenance. Um, and so you see uh, some continuation of this with communities that had served the Mughal empire. Um, so a lot of Muslim soldiers would use this. Um, Rajput soldiers who had served in, uh, in some of the Mughal armies at, at various points would often use this as well. But it had sort of permeated uh, much of South Asian society by the 20th century that, so that you know, to the point that you see Hindu soldiers and Sikh soldiers using this kind of terminology as well. And so in a lot of their letters home, soldiers would say, you know, I am fighting because I owe, you know, I, you know, because of the government salt, because of the loyalty that I owe to the government, because they give me my paycheck. And so it has this imaginative, imaginative power for a lot of soldiers that it's a duty that they owe to the government because the government sustains them and sustains their family and keeps them alive. However, <laughs> by the early 20th century, there are a lot of other issues going on with food. You know, there have been massive famines that have affected a lot of areas of India, especially Punjab in the early 20th century. Uh, horrible famines, horrible plagues um, through, you know, much of the, the turn of the 20th century period. So a lot of soldiers are like, wait a minute, you know, do I actually owe my loyalty to this government if this government has been depriving my entire community of food, of sustenance, you know, does that change the relationship? 
Um, but again, because a lot of British leaders interpret everything as strictly religious through that kind of prism, they often focused a lot of their attention on religious criticisms of food in particular. So kind of singling out um, high caste uh, Brahmin in particular soldiers as being bad for military discipline. So if there was any sort of food-based critique or criticism, they would say, oh, it's probably the Brahmin's fault. And if, if, a, you know, if a Sikh is doing it or if a Muslim soldier is doing it, oh, it must be because a Brahmin soldier or Hindu soldier got to him and convinced him to do this. You know? So again, ignoring the sort of wider cultural resonance, ignoring the material conditions of the soldier's service and, and their variety of reasons for being upset. Um, and then of course, throughout the chapter, I kind of show that like, even though they claimed to dislike, you know, high caste Brahmin food practices, for example, and, and portray them as bad for military discipline in a variety of ways, they would, you know, make sure that Muslim soldiers, for example, had food that was halal. And they would make sure that Nepali Gurkha soldiers, you know, participated in the Panipatia ceremony uh, and that they would actually get written reports from any hospital where a Nepali soldier was stationed and, you know, officers would write, oh yes, everything was fine and no soldiers complained. Now, of course, you know, whether or not you buy that <laughs> is a whole other thing, but nonetheless, they would go to the trouble to, to get the report written so that they could prove to a Nepali authority, like, see, these men had good food, they liked their water and everything was fine. Um, so it was sort of left to individual soldiers to complain, which soldiers, you know, in militaries generally aren't given the opportunity uh, or encouraged to do so. So yeah, food it was yet another thing that British officials tended to understand one way, South Asian soldiers tended to understand in a different way. And through the military, they're trying to kind of flatline um, this, this rather complex issue and just say, oh, it's just about this kind of faith-based objection, therefore kind of ignoring the longer issues around food. Okay. Um, so I'm a little off the topic and just a question that I had um, was where you mentioned, I mean, you've mentioned that multiple times through the conversation that the British always try to view things through the prism of uh, religious uh, uh, identity that they're probably doing it because they're religiously motivated to do so. Um, so like uh, my question was like, why did they choose to look through that lens of binary rather than acknowledge what was the multi-layered reality of that time? Like, Why was this insistence? Was there some sort of insecurity that they had probably after 1857 or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just guessing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a really big and important question that kind of gets at the nature of what's wrong with colonialism in general <laughs> um, and, you know, problems inherent in militaries and governance, which is that, you know, governance is about trying to control populations in, in many instances. And with colonialism, it's imposing a form of governance that's rooted in a place that's far away from where the governance is actually taking place. So there's this, there's this kind of inherent distance between the ruler and the ruled, you know, the governor and the governed. Um, and so what that has tended to mean in, you know, in the case of the British in India, but I think also more broadly, is that there becomes a kind of shorthand for how do we control populations as easily as possible. And very early in British colonialism, and I think especially because a lot of, you know, East India Company 
uh, so-called founding fathers of India, again, with this, this, the scare quotes, um, a lot of these, you know, foundational East India Company, British and European leaders were coming to India during the time of, you know, the European enlightenment, uh, you know, where in theory, a lot of Europeans are, are casting off and questioning what religion means for European society. And they're trying to say, no, it should be about science and rationality and categorization. That's how we can understand the world and by documenting and, and creating categories for what things are. So a lot of these kind of enlightenment um, inspired individuals are, are going to India and interpreting what they see as, wow, this is a very religious society. So again, kind of using a word uh, that has a specific meaning in Europe and applying it to India. And so when under the East India Company, they're trying to say, okay, we need to create legal codes that can help control these populations. They see religion as being a kind of foundational aspect of Indian society and culture. So if they want to control those populations, they need to do it through faith-based communities. And so that is a trend and a tendency that's established in, you know, in the early days of the East India Company that carry over. And because of events like 1857, even though there were rebels of various different belief systems, um, and be, you know, because the Mughal Empire was a, you know, a Muslim entity, and that a lot of the soldiers rebelling in 1857 were Muslim, you know, that became another way to say, okay, we need to say that, you know, there's something particularly wrong with the, with the uh, Mughal empire and that Muslim soldiers are maybe distrustful, you know, they're untrustworthy right now. So maybe Hindu soldiers are better. And then Hindu soldiers become worse as the 19th century goes on in the minds of the British officials. So maybe Sikh soldiers are the best. So it's like, it's a constantly evolving pattern of how can we determine who is loyal? How can we determine who is disloyal? And if the baseline understanding is Indians are religious, that's always the, the kind of go-to assumption that, that these British leaders have because there's never a lot that shakes that, that underlying assumption, unfortunately. On a lighter note, uh, colonial colonizing someone seems like a really tough job to do for a country to come on a foreign land and uh, colonize an entire land and population. It doesn't work out well. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so coming to the next chapter where you talk about uh, nationalist sentiments that were uh, uh, nationalism in, in, the, uh, uh, in relation to the army. My question was, uh, how was the rise of nationalist sentiment in the subcontinent uh, really influencing uh, the army's behavior? Uh, and how was this shaping the colonial policy uh, towards the armies in particular? Yeah, another great question. The One of the, the major trends in the immediate uh, post-First World War period is a, a trend toward Indianization, um, a desire to make the leadership and the hierarchy of the Indian army um, more pro-Indian, or at least like have officers that are Indian, you know, not have a kind of sort of glass ceiling, <laughs> if you will, on the level to which Indian soldiers can rise, whereas, you know, British soldiers can be above it. 
there is a lot of pressure from Indian nationalists to make that a reality, um, especially after the First World War, because if you've been selling for four years of war, you know, five years as we get into um, the, the Third Anglo-Afghan War and soldiers are continuing to fight in, you know, various British mandates for decades, you know, years and decades after, how do you legitimize that service? How do you continue to sell the narrative that the British Empire is good for soldiers and, and good for India if soldiers have been serving for years and risking their lives for years. So a lot of nationalists are putting pressure on the Indian army and saying, if you want to make good on the promises that you've been giving to these soldiers, there has to be some tangible payout on this. And so Indianization becomes one method of saying, yes, there are changes. Yes, there is progress. And, and yes, this will help India get closer to that kind of always murky line of independence, you know, because independence is always the, the carrot that's dangled as like, if, if you do these things and independence is something we'll grant you maybe someday at some point, eventually, um, you know, always in very ambiguous terms. Um, and so Indianization becomes one of these promises. And so initially that means admitting Indian men to Sandhurst, um, which is the, the training center for officers in, in the United Kingdom. But then that evolves and it becomes establishing an Indian military academy within India itself, which opens in the 1930s. And so there's a desire to recruit and train more Indian officers. But at the same time, British leaders are constantly afraid that the men who would be attracted to the higher salaries and the higher esteem and the higher prestige that comes with being an officer might be men who are educated, who are literate, who have traveled, and who are, are anti-colonial. And so what the British end up doing is increasing the amount of education that they give to their soldiers and making religious education a normal part of soldiers training, uh, training young men, even younger. So men uh, and boys from the age of like 10 and 11 start going into military schools and being trained. Um, and the idea is that this is supposed to train men as young as possible to see the British as good, as beneficial, and to see the army as a legitimate career choice and to ultimately support the empire as long as it exists. So it's a very tricky, delicate balance um, because they're also trying to say, yes, you are Indians. Yes, you should be able to lead any man into battle regardless of, of faith difference, uh, but nonetheless still view each other with some suspicion because we don't know who the nationalists are and we don't want them to influence you. So nationalists are constantly putting pressure on the army which does result in some changes, um, but at the same time, the army tends to revert back to a lot of its older assumptions um, and kind of just perpetuate and even deepen the differences between the communities and, and ensure that, that those divisions never really go away. Uh, well, before we can conclude, I mean, uh, um, sorry for taking away beyond your time. I, uh, before we actually conclude to just uh, touch upon your last chapter, um, I just wanted to ask you about this theme that you explored in the last chapter about uh, Hindus and Indianization. And uh, I just wanted to understand how this uh, categorization of certain races and military races was really influencing the larger community or the majority in the community of the Hindus. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting dynamic, I think, which is that if you know the army has been saying for decades, 
Um, and increasingly so that, you know, Muslims are ideal soldiers, Sikhs are ideal soldiers, Nepali Gurkhas are, are ideal soldiers. There were constantly ways that they were saying Hindus are not, you know, and initially it started with Brahmins are not, you know, and there are some Hindus certainly that, that were considered good soldiers. Rajputs, for example, were always considered uh, worthwhile. Um, but there was a demographic skew within the army, um, which is that Hindus were a minority in the army and that most of the Hindus that were recruited were actually Nepali Gurkhas. So Indian Hindus, despite being, you know, a majority population in India, were always a minority in the army. And so this starts to shift somewhat with Indianization as a greater number of Indian Hindus are actually testing quite well on the Indian military exams uh, for training at the Indian Military Academy. And so this creates a lot of uncertainty on the part of British officers. Like, wait a minute, we've always been saying that Indian Hindus are, are bad for the army. And yet when we're trying to recruit officers who will command this army, Indian Hindus are actually doing quite well. And so what's going on is that because of these long-standing narratives of Indian Hindus aren't martial, Indian Hindus are effeminate, you know, to use the, the kind of the terminology um, and dynamics explored by uh, Mini Sinha in her uh, colonial masculinity with the, the so-called effeminate Babu idea, um, there were these constant colonial narratives that, that Hindu men were not manly, they were not martial. And so by the early 20th century, there are a lot of Hindu reformist organizations and individuals and leaders who are trying to say, no, that's not true. We are martial. We are manly. Let's eat beef. Let's do football. Let's train in yoga and prove that there are a variety of ways that Indian Hindu men can be martial. And in some cases, this leads to the forming of Indian military academies exclusively for Indian Hindus. And the idea is like, oh, we need to train Indian Hindus so they can catch up with, you know, Sikhs and Muslims. But what's tricky about this, of course, is that they are the majority population, you know? So when India is marching toward independence, when a lot of Indian Hindus become leaders of the Indian National Congress and Indian nationalist movements, suddenly those things look very different, you know? It's not just about, oh, we're trying to get Indian Hindu men to be as strong and manly, now it looks a lot more just like exclusionary um, and trying to keep, you know, Sikhs and, and Muslims out uh, so that when independence does happen, do we now just have segregated communities, segregated um, institutions that are excluding those communities that had been previously valued by the British? And so that creates a lot of uncertainty and a lot of dynamics, especially as we get close to the Second World War, where, you know, the First World War, you had 1.4 million, um, which was a, a dramatic increase from the 100 to 250,000 that would serve in peacetime. By the Second World War, you get 2.4 million people that are uh, serving in that, in that conflict. And so a much wider cross-section of Indian society is coming into military service, bringing a lot of these ideas and you have threaded throughout Indian society this kind of competition for who is the most martial, who is the most manly, which communities deserve to set the tone for independent India. And because of all of these martial race ideas, there is a competition for who is the biggest, who is the strongest, who can be the most violent. Uh, and those are the ones that should get to rule independent India, which have, you know, tremendous and, and devastating consequences rooted in the colonial period. 
Well, a last question on the theme of your book was about the uh, fascism and imperialism, uh, about how fascism was becoming attractive in certain British military officials, and, uh, you know, how the theories of racial uh, difference was uh, proving to be a, a strong link for that. So if you, if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I think uh, this this is a dynamic that's been sort of threaded throughout the book, which is that if you combine these essentialized ideas about, you know, these are the loyal communities, these are the martial communities, these are the communities that are most desirable, the most prized, it it kind of folds very naturally into what becomes, you know, the the early to mid 20th century fascist outlook, which is that you know, people can be grouped, people can be controlled, society can be militarized. So I find it sort of unsurprising that in this context where a lot of British officers are encouraged to see populations as controllable, as distinct, um, that a lot of these British officers end up becoming attracted to fascism. And what I think is fascinating is that you can also see a parallel with a lot of the Indian officers that they are training. A lot of the Indian soldiers that they are training as well are, are sort of sharing those outlooks um, and sharing these ideas of, you know, in order to prove yourself, in order to be a man, in order to lead a nation, you have to be militant. You need to be martial uh, and you need to be exclusionary in your outlook. You can pick and choose who belongs in the state. And so I think it's very scary that at this this moment of global war, uh, you know, by the the you know late 1930s and then into the 1940s, which is also you know 1940s, the moment of Indian partition and independence, that these ideas have been kind of pervading um, colonial society and the rank and file. In, in ways that I think are very frightening, which, you know, then we see a lot of violence around partition um, and a lot of horror and a lot of uh, devastation often coming from men who had served in the military. And so kind of just peeling that back and thinking a little bit about uh, the militarization of a society and how fascist outlooks have been sort of pervading various elements of, of the military and its organization and its outlook for me, it's, you know, very informative and also helps explain why the period was so violent and tragic. Thank you so much. Uh, so this brings us to the last set of questions in conclusion. Uh, I just wanted for, uh, to discuss the relevance of this particular project in contemporary world and uh, why is it necessary for anyone to basically come to realize about the military history of South Asia and the intricacies with kind of religion and culture and uh, the smaller nitty gritty details that it comes with and uh, to see it as you know not something that has always been painted in binaries but something that's you know with complexities so um, why what what kind of relevance does the work uh, hold today yeah I think uh, it, it holds a lot of relevance and um, you know not not to over overstate my case but I, I think anytime we're interested in uh, in any historical subject, it, it's because it, it, it resonates with us and how we see the world and the world around us. And so, you know, we still live in a world with massive militaries. We still live in a world with hard national borders. And, you know, I think we very much live in a world where understandings of faith are playing a very large role in, in politics and in a, in a variety of places. And, you know, 
in the United States, for instance, like targeting which, you know, people can come from which countries that have certain majority populations defined by faith. You know, I think these ideas are very much pervading a lot of the assumptions of how different governments are run, uh, who gets to go where, what governments work with what governments. So we live in a world that has nations, that has militaries, that has borders. And all of these things tend to be, you know, anti-human <laughs> in, in a very fundamental way and anti, you know, the, the complexity and the nuance and the messiness of, of human existence. Um, so all of these things are about creating categories and creating divisions and creating differences. So this book hopefully reminds us that, that these things aren't necessarily for the betterment of all people. And that once we fall, find ourselves falling into these, these same colonial patterns, that those don't go the way as intended. You know, they never go the way as intended. They tend to have all sorts of unintended consequences, which generally make things worse, not better. Um, thank you about that. Um, so one final question before I can ask you for a little advice. Uh, is that you already mentioned previously mentioned at the beginning of a conversation of the work you're currently working on. Um, so um, what is the next thing that we can look forward from your work that we can keep an eye out for? Yeah, of course. I uh, So my next book, it looks at, it's tentatively called uh, Losing Hearts and Minds. And so it looks at the, the military and cultural history of Southeast Asia and particularly uh, Singapore and Malaya, which were sites of some of the most instrumental and, and um, influential military conflicts of the 20th century. Um, so you have the, the fall of Singapore, you have uh, in, in the Second World War, you have the Singapore mutiny in 1915, and then you also have uh, the, the Malayan emergency, which was one of the major uh, anti-communist conflicts um, that sort of predated and then tremendously influenced uh, the US war in Vietnam. So you have all of these, these moments of great influence in, in military history that are all happening in one place, which is also a, a kind of moving point for soldiers from around the empire. So Indian soldiers, very influential in 1915 and in 1942, Nepali Gurkha soldiers are still there in the, uh, in the Malayan emergency. And then you also have soldiers from Africa, from Australia, um, and you know, truly a global movement of soldiers coming into this relatively small part of the world. So I wanna look at how militaries are formed in the 20th century, uh, how they interact with civilians and how that creates a lot of, again, un unintended consequences for uh, our present realities. Thank you so much. And uh, we wish you all the best, best of luck for your upcoming work. Um, Thank you. So uh, your last, the last question is, uh, what kind of advice would you give to a student who wants to, say, pursue military history, especially, say, of not just particularly South Asia, regionally, but overall 20th century colonial uh, military history and how these uh, militaries were basically managed? So uh, something that they could early on look out for something, sources, books, or whatever that you may have as advice. Yeah, so one is uh, that I mentioned earlier, which is just try and find as much as you can that's been digitized. Um, you know, look at 
the the libraries and archives that exist in your field um, and start you know looking around and asking around because there are all sorts of great databases that are out there that uh, have a, a, a tremendous amount of digitized newspapers, oral histories, um, you know, digitized material culture. So I definitely recommend that. But from a kind of broader conceptual point, if you know, if you're doing military history or if you're doing cultural history, and you're a graduate student, um, I would say be as open to as many interpretations as possible. Um, learn from as many different outlooks and approaches as you can while you can because i think you know something that i see in various fields you know that there's only one way that you can be a military historian or there's only one way that you can be a historian of south asia maybe um and i think that can be limiting especially when you're a graduate student and you're learning i think as a graduate student learn as many different approaches as you can and find which ones work for you because that's probably where you'll find the passion in your project uh, and that's also probably where you'll find the new insight that will help other scholars move forward. Thank you so much. This brings us to the end of our episode and podcast. Uh, I really appreciate you taking so much time for uh, coming and joining us on the call. I apologize if I took a little longer than uh, we might have anticipated this call might have went for, but it was a really exciting conversation and I definitely uh, love the book. I, I I really want to get back to the book in, in detail and make sure that I read every single page of it. Uh, but uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm uh, really grateful for giving us the opportunity to interview you. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, thank you so much for for inviting me. It's it's been a pleasure, and I know I wish you nothing but the best for for your continued success with the podcast and for your future studies thank as well. Thank you. Thank you everyone for tuning into our episode in conversation with Dr. Kiraimi. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation, and if you did, please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. Check out our website www.indiacolonized.com for more on South Asia's colonial history. If any of you listeners are interested to work with us, we've recently started a rolling volunteering program for students and others in areas of research. For details on the program, please go to our website www.indiacolonized.com that's colonized with an S. Do consider following us on our social media sites for more exciting updates and information on South Asia's colonial history. So until next time, stay safe, stay curious.